Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Our reading today comes from Genesis 2, 4 through 15. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth, where the Lord God made the earth from the heavens. Neither wild plants nor grains were found on the earth, for the God had not sent rain yet to water the earth, and there were... And there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. The Lord God formed formed man from the dust of of the ground and breathed breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. The Lord God planted a garden, Eden, in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruits. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the Eden, watering the garden and dividing into four branches. The first branch, called Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure, aromatic resin, and onyx gold or onyx stone are also found there. The second branch called Gahan flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch called the Tigris flowed east of the land of Usher. And the fourth branch called Euphrates is called Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend to and watch over it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, I'm so impressed with you right now. That was incredible. Also, I learned how to pronounce some of those words just now. (laughs) Sawyer, you are amazing. That was awesome. Um, All right, uh, very quickly before we jumped in, uh, if you missed last week, uh, we announced that, that I kind of made a joke about this with Johnny and then realized some of you may not have known what I was joking about. Uh, We announced that our associate pastor, Chad, and his wife, Christy, are moving to Atlanta. Um, It is a long, slow process over the next few months. Chad is not abandoning us. I do think it's hilarious that we made that big announcement. He's like, don't worry, I'm not abandoning you. And then he's not here today. (laughs) But that trip has been planned for like six months, but still, I think it's kind of funny. Um, uh, So if if this is new information for you, if you will, check out our podcast from last week. It's on the website, and it's um, anywhere that you can find podcasts, uh, you can find that. Um, Sorry, pause. Johnny, will you go open that back door? It's locked for some reason. Um, anywhere you can find podcasts, you can do that. Um, I re-listened to this week and realized that I talked about how excited I was 55 times, which almost makes it unbelievable. But, um, but I forgot to say something that I wish that I would have. Uh, there's a guy named Seth Bouchel, who Chad and I have quoted from time to time recently. Um, he is becoming a friend. He's a mentor of mine and Chad's uh, in New York City. And um, he says this. He, he had a college professor that said that the opposite of a true thing is a false thing. We think that, right? Like the opposite of a true thing is a false thing. But his professor would say, but the opposite of a profoundly true thing 
is another equally as profoundly true thing. And so when I think about Chad moving, that I've thought about that so many times that it is um, very profoundly true that I'm so excited for him. And it is very profoundly true that I am so disappointed and sad all at the same time. And so, um, I don't know, just that phrasing was very helpful for me, maybe helpful for you. Um, but at the end of our time last week, we like barely jumped into a new sermon series that uh, we're doing over the next few weeks here at the, the vineyard called Garden City. Um, I stole the name Garden City uh, from a book called Garden City, and I stole it for two reasons. One, I liked the name. And so I took it. Um, But honestly, this book is going to serve sort of like a textbook for us over the next few weeks. And so I stole the name for a second reason. And that is so that maybe you would see it every week and it would remind you to go get this book and read this book. Uh, Because from time to time I stand up here and I'm like, if you read anything, read this book. And that's how I feel about this one. Uh, Garden City by John Mark Comer. Um, But our main question to try to answer over the next few weeks that I want us to discover and try to answer together is this. What does it mean to be human? Uh, What does it mean to be a person? Why do we exist? What's our purpose? Uh, Who are we? Um, Every single religion and so much of philosophy and psychiatry and uh, self-actualization and self-help and things like that are all um, attempting to answer this question. And in my opinion, it's the oldest question that exists like in time. It is like an ancient, intrinsic, primal question that all of us are asking, uh, what does it mean to be a person? I think it's a question we're born with and one that we're constantly discovering all uh, throughout our lives. Uh, The Bible begins to answer this question in the very first chapter. So like right before what Sawyer read in in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 uh, say this, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Uh, What does it mean to be human? According to the scriptures, uh, part of being human is that we are um, essentially created creators, That we were made on earth in the image of God. That we are bearers of God's image. And at the same time, bearers um, and some kind of partner in the creation that God made. A created being and a ruler. Uh, Seth Buschel, again, he says it like this. He says, we have in us the nature of what is made, but also a reflection of the capacities of the one who made it all. We have in us the nature of what is made, but also a reflection of the capacities of the one who created all of it. I want to break that down just a bit um, and talk about what it means for us to bear within us parts of both the creator and his creation. Uh, Verse 27 uh, that I just read, Genesis 127 is the first Bible verse I, I think I memorized in Bible drill. Did anybody do Bible drill growing up? Yeah. You know it. Okay. Um, uh, Bible drill, for those of you who don't know, is a competition between young Christians where they try to memorize more verses than each other and compete over it. And you get a jacket at the end if you go. So thinking about bringing it around here to spring where it feels like us, you know. To do, to do something like that. But anyway, I memorized this in Bible drill. Um, but I, so I've known this verse I almost, as long as I can remember, but, but I've never really investigated the, con, investigated the context for it. Uh, and so all of this comes from this book, Garden City by John Mark Comer. Again, 
can't recommend it enough. But in verse uh, 27 of Genesis 1, there are two Hebrew words uh, in that verse that sort of open up this idea of, of the image of God for us. Uh, the first phrase uh, uses the word Elohim, which Elohim is a word for God. Um, and in verse 27, this word Elohim, it has like a tag attached to this word that, that points back to, uh, this is Elohim, it, the tag basically says image of God. That's like the Hebrew breaking down. And, and to us, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But in ancient times, this was um, an idiom that was used very regularly. It was a, uh, a word Elohim and the tag onto it basically only existed for kings though. It was like a word exclusive to the pharaohs that like pointed to their godlike status into the word. So uh, Elohim would, 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 would be tagged on with something like this for them. For example, um, one pharaoh carried along the tag Amon, which means that uh, this Pharaoh was made in the image of the God Amon, the God of sun and the God of air. And this would be really common phrasing, uh, not just in Egypt, but all over Mesopotamia. But the creation story uh, does something that so much of the Bible does, where it takes something that's meant for the exclusivity of power and it subverts that thing. Because the Bible's creation story doesn't reserve this Elohim and this tag uh, just for kings or just for people of power. Uh, the, the Bible version of this phrasing would declare that all humans are made in the image of God. Not just the powerful ones. All humans are made in the image of God. That all of us bear within us a divine image. That we all reflect the creation, uh, and the, uh, the, both the creation and the image of the creator. Uh, the second phrasing in, in this verse, uh, the Hebrew word for it is uh, selim, which means something, it, it, the other word for image in uh, Genesis 127 is selim, and it means something like an idol or a, a statue, essentially a visible expression of something bigger or something invisible. And the Genesis creation story tells us that, uh, calls us God's selims, God's statues uh, put on the earth to make the divine image visible to the world, to reflect the image of something bigger into the world. Part of the answer of what it means to be human, according to the Bible, is to bear the image of God into the world. But the Bible seems to say uh, that alongside that identity is also some purpose. We do not just bear the image, but part of what it means to be human also means to bear some of the responsibility or the authority over what's been created. Uh, the next verse in, in, chapter, or in verse 28 of chapter 1 says, fill the earth and govern it and reign over it. The creation story says that, that the purpose of humanity is to reflect, but also to rule. And I think we get um, maybe some weird phrasing in our heads when we think about rule because I automatically uh, think government, I think kings, uh, I think something like that. Um, but the Hebrew word for rule or reign is rada, which um, essentially means something like that, but it means to have dominion over something. Uh, in his book, John Mark Comrie quotes a Hebrew scholar who translates the word rada to mean to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. I love this definition. Ruling, according to Genesis, is an active partnership with God as he moves creation toward something. So in summary, according to the Bible, uh, human beings are both a reflection of the image of the creator God and also at the same time tasked with an active partnership to join God in taking his creation 
towards something. Created creators. In verse 28, we get some sort of explanation about why we exist, what we exist for. And it's something that we talk about constantly around here. Uh, Theologians call it the creation mandate that God invites every single human being to join him. And the way he says it is he says, fill the earth and govern it. Work the ground and bring order to it, depending on your translation. Part of what it means to be human is that our work is to join God by getting our hands in the dirt of the earth and then to protect and order what has been made here. This is the work of being human. And from the very beginning, the Bible has a lot to say about work. The word work in its different forms is mentioned 800 times in the scripture. If you are a Bible nerd, then that would be like ding, ding, ding. Like there's a, that's, a, that's a lot of times to say anything. In fact, uh, the whole book, the whole Bible begins with God working. Uh, As Eugene Peterson says, the Bible doesn't begin with God sitting majestic in the heavens, but it begins with God doing something, making something. The scriptures, they begin uh, with the part and the nature and the character of God being uh, that he works. This is why we talk about work all the time here. We talk about it all the time because we believe that God has made us in his image and we believe that that means that we have a role to play, a purpose in work. We talk about it a lot because we think it matters a lot. Um, my favorite definition of work that, that I have ever heard um, from a spiritual perspective comes from Tim Keller, who I think is a genius, and he defines work like this. He says, work is the rearranging of the raw materials of a particular domain in order to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. I'm going to repeat it. Work is the, the rearranging of the raw materials in order to draw out their potential for the flourishing of everyone. Uh, In our text today, uh, there are all these, the reason why I made Sawyer read this crazy text with all of these words that are impronounceable in it is because there are all these details that seem kind of pointless when you read them. There are descriptions about trees and dust, uh, all of the rivers, and then the rivers are named and, and they all flow around the garden. And then there's a description of where to find gold and where to find resin and where to, where to find onyx. And again, all of this seems kind of pointless to me as I've read it over my lifetime. Uh, but then I was listening to a teaching on this uh, that pointed out something that blew my mind. These details are included in the creation story because they are a list of raw materials, dust, water, gold, onyx, resin. These were the things that the first humans used as they joined God in his creating work. Their work was to arrange and rearrange the raw materials in the name of flourishing and in the hopes of flourishing for everyone. I love this definition of work because while it is absolutely about vocation, it also takes us far beyond vocation and into meaning and into purpose. This definition means that in places where we live and work and learn and play, we have a potential for, to bring about flourishing for other people. And yes, your work is one of those places Uh, This is your work in a classroom or administrating classrooms to find ways to arrange what you have in a way that draws out flourishing for everyone. This is your creative charge as a Jesus follower. 
It's a charge um, that, that, that teaches us how to work on computers or how to go to Denzo or Alcoa or Clayton or Blackberry or one of our other giant employers in this town or um, how to be an engineer or how to take family photos or how to counsel people in crisis or how to bag groceries or, or be a part of the medical community. Flourishing is the charge for how we work. But it goes beyond that because your purpose in life is bigger than what you do. This is also our charge and our role at, at the gym. Um, CrossFit, Chad's not here, so I have to say it on stage. Um, you know, it's like rearranging the raw materials of your own body in order to make yourself flourishing. It's, 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 it speaks into how we cook for people, how to be a nurturing friend or parent. Uh, our role in the flourishing in the world has much to say about how we show up in the world. And I think that there are two main things that, that kind of get in our way, um, keep us from this way of living. Uh, the first is it feels maybe like too big and too broad to even imagine. And I, I want to talk about that in just a second. But I think the second reason is, is that I think we have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives in a way that keeps us from our true purpose and identity as human beings. Here's what I mean. Um, I think in the modern world, uh, we forget that there is no chasm between, uh, for us between what is sacred and what is secular, what is of God and what is of earth, what belongs to God, what belongs to man. Uh, I want to quote Seth Bouchel again. Um, I feel like he should pay me at this point to continue to quote him this much, but he wrote a book called Lost Faith. It's phenomenal. We're going to put it up on our resources tomorrow. It's really good. Um, and he says this. God exists in God's own category and is without equal or peer. And below God is creation. All the plants and animals and bacteria and the stars and the things that crawl on the ground and the elements hidden within the earth. But in between is the human. And the human is both creation and divine image. We have in us the nature of what is made, but also a reflection of the capacities of the one who made it all. We hold the tension between created and creator without a fully having a sense of belonging to either or perhaps with a feeling of equally belonging to both. We as humans hold the tension between the created and the creator and I think that one of the ways we've handled this or mishandled this is that uh, that tension and belonging uh, is to live our lives as if there is like a divide or chasm between what is sacred and what is secular, what is of God and what is of the world. And so because we feel the tension of these two overlapping worlds and because we struggle with belonging, our response as humans has been to lead these really compartmentalized lives where everything kind of has its section. My uh, therapist, when she talks about this, she calls it like living like a chest of drawers. Can you picture a chest of drawers? Maybe picture one in your house with however many drawers in it. And, and, and we have different drawers for different things in our life. We have our church drawer or our sacred drawer. We have our work drawer, family, our friend drawer, our hobbies, if you have any. You've got a, a drawer for those. We have a, a drawer for sexuality. We have a, a drawer for, um, I don't Think of all the things that, that we have, all these things in our lives, and we have all these different drawers. And then many of us also have a drawer where we keep all of our secrets and all of the things that we hope no one, especially God, uh, would know about us. 
But sometimes in healthy places in our lives, the drawers, they start to blend together. Your family becomes your friends, or your friends become your family, your family, right? And they, they start to kind of blend together. Uh, the counseling word for this is congruence. And as we tend to turn toward flourishing, our drawers start to merge. The goal of life, honestly, is to have one big drawer, one congruent life. But unfortunately, the antithesis is also true. When we tend toward destruction or destructive places or disordered living or habits, we create more drawers. We compartmentalize more to keep uh, the destruction separate. If we have something that we know is actively destroying us or the people around it, we want to keep it away from the people around us, right? To, to separate our destruction from our work or our family, to keep these destructive tendencies away from what's sacred, uh, one of the problems of being friends with Chad is that when he sits with you, when you've had like a secret drawer uh, exposed, when he sits with you, he always asks the same question. He'll say, um, have you talked to Jesus about this? And my answer is always the same. No. No, I have not and will not. You know, like it, it, we, we live these separate compartmentalized lives. But according to the creation story, the creator has bearing on every single dimension of life. All of life is seen by God. All of life is sacred to God because we bear his image. The world was not set up as a compartmentalized chest of drawers. The world was set up as one. My metaphor breaks down at some point. The way we show up in the places where we live and work and learn and play, they, they matter to God. Uh, what we learn uh, in the garden is that God, he tenderly creates each thing of earth. And then he tenderly creates people. And then in a tender and vulnerable risk, he puts people in charge of all of what he has made. And he says, name it and work it and protect it. I give it to you. Get your hands into all that has been created and bring order to it. I give you access to all the raw materials of earth. Create new things. Name new things that benefit everyone. Restore places and people and things in the name of flourishing. This is not uh, just in the creation story that we find this. It's all over the scriptures from beginning to end. In fact, the end of the scriptures are very similar to the very beginning. They, they end in a really similar place. The scriptures begin in a garden, and then the whole Bible also ends in a garden. Except the garden at the end in Revelations 22, the garden at the end has become a city with streets and jobs and government, and the rivers, they don't flow around the garden. They flow right down the middle of it, giving life and flourishing to everyone on every side. It's a picture of a garden where everything is restored, where humans continue to partner with God, continue to reign with him, and reign with Jesus. From beginning to end, the kingdom of God has bearing on every single facet of life. And as kingdom people, our role is to live in this world as a congruent person, and a salt and light filling the world with more of the good stuff of heaven. Which means, according to the Bible, that there is no divide between following Jesus and being a supply chain manager. That's what Daniel does, I think. <laughs> there is no divide uh, between being 
following Jesus and being a supply chain manager. It means making a car is sacred to God. It means teaching a class is sacred to God, and so is taking one. It, it means planning a bus route or backing groceries or being a nurse is sacred to God. It means retirement is sacred to God. And I'm, so I'm not trying to like over-spiritualize the thing that you, things that you do. I'm trying to appropriate them, to put them in their proper place. Your life and your work and the way you show up in the world, it is sacred to God. It is not separated from him. Learning to live life in the overlap of the sacred and the secular uh, is crucial to living life as a Jesus follower. It's crucial to learning what it means to be a human being made in the image of God, and it's crucial for how we see and value other people. Uh, it invites us, I think, into deeper levels of intentionality. It invites us into deeper levels of curiosity, an invitation to maybe reevaluate what we do in light of who we believe God is making us to be. Or maybe it's an invitation to reevaluate how we do what we do. As a Jesus follower, as a kingdom person, as someone made in God's image, it's a good thing to look at your life and ask, where am I or where can I rethink, reimagine, rearrange my life for flourishing in me and for those around me? Okay, to close this up, um, in hopes of being less vague or huge, I just want to talk about a few ways that I've seen this in action uh, in the world. Uh, uh, the first is I've talked about the, my friend Adam before. My friend Adam owns a, a printing business, and he owns a printing business on purpose in Camden, New Jersey. And if you've heard of Camden, New Jersey, it's probably because you read an article in the New York Times that called Camden, New Jersey the worst city in America, right? And on purpose, my friend put his business there. And then he put his business in there and he decided, I'm going to pay a living wage to everyone that works for me, which is unheard of in Camden. And then for a while, uh, when, when it was working, he, he had um, a, a company that did all of his packing and shipping that only employed folks with special needs. And what he's done is he's looked at every facet of his level of business and he's saying, how can I do this in a way that flourishes my business but also impacts the city? How can I do this in a way? And he looks at it at every level. Uh, here's another way. Um, if you have been in a classroom lately, particularly an elementary school classroom or a, a middle intermediate school, although I would argue we probably need to extend this further. If you've been in one of those classrooms, there are seats everywhere and they're all different kinds. Have you all seen these? Like there's bouncy seats, there's soft seats, there's hard seats, there's high seats, there's low seats, there's stand-up desks. That is because teachers are taking the literal raw materials of the world and rearranging them in a way that leads to the flourishing of everyone. This is genius. We should applaud it and probably pay for it. I got 10 teachers in here. I'll take your money. <laughs> this is great stuff. This is, we have in us the capacity to do these things. Okay, here's the last one. This is a super practical uh, one. I hope it helps to humanize this uh, uh, in a way that maybe takes it from being too big or too broad. Um, in, in our house, uh, mine and Daniel's house, we, um, one of our like, I don't know, values of living is that we just like stuff. Like, we just want to be people who like stuff. In particular, I mean, food. Every, if you're a parent, you have a parenting hang-up where it's like the one thing that you are completely inflexible on. And this is my one thing. You will like everything. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it's, we have a lovely home. <laughs> people like living there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, 
But that's it. Like when it comes to food, we are just like, you're just going to like stuff. Uh, And so uh, I have these memories of trying to get my kids to eat things like you will like hummus and we will sit here until you like hummus. And it is like, it is humiliating to think back. Like I have like the hours I have sat at a table, like, you know, we'll leave when one person has finished their hummus. You know, I mean, it's just like, Awfully embarrassing. And so Daniel and I are in marriage counseling. Um, you should be too. And um, so we're in counseling one day and our, and our therapist is talking about something completely different, but somehow she brings up the story of her friend who was forcing her kid to eat a hot dog by putting it in his mouth and then closing his lips over it. And I was like, you forgot that that friend is me. And, um, <laughs> and you're just like being a good therapist and trying to keep boundaries, but I think it was me. Um, and, and then she keeps going and she was like, and then the, the whole scene ends where like uh, the kid's in tears, the mom's in tears, there's hot dog spit everywhere. And, and, um, and she, she, said, she said, and then she had this realization, like this thing from the Holy Spirit that like gave her vision into how to live this life. This is when I realized it wasn't me. Um, and, and she said that the Holy Spirit gave her three questions to ask uh, when, when, with her kid and with eating. And there are these th- three questions. Does this honor God? You can write these down. These are awesome. Does this honor God? Does this honor the other person? Does this honor me? And so she replayed uh, through PTSD her hot dog incident. And she was like, it does not honor God for me to shove a hot dog in my child's mouth. It does not honor my child to do this. And it does not honor me to do this. And it's these three questions that, and, 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 and I, I, I put them onto parenting. My parenting problems are a little bigger. Uh, they've, they've gone to high school now, so it's less about hot dogs, uh, more about, I don't know, girls. And, uh, but these, <laughs> luckily they, ha- they have good taste. But these questions um, have become really important to me as a parent, but they've also become really important to me as I live and work and play and interact with people. The idea that I could show up in the world and ask three questions before I make decisions. Does this honor God? Does this honor the other person or people? And does this honor me? These are three really good questions that have helped me make some huge, uh, they've made a huge impact on my life. They keep me out of trouble. Because things that uh, might honor me don't always honor God and don't always honor other people. They're questions that keep me congruent. They keep me having less drawers because to honor Daniel, I have to be honest about some stuff that I don't want him to know. To honor God, I have to be honest about some stuff that I really don't want him to know. They bring me back to why I was made to reign in creation while reflecting the image of the creator. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we, take, we do this every week in the vineyard. We call it Selah. It's just a quiet pause. It's like a breath. Um, and so we're just going to be still for a little while and let you, um, I don't know, think through, ponder this. Um, I have two questions for you to consider if, if it helps. Uh, there will also be scripture on the screen. You can follow along with that. But if it helps you to kind of think through some questions, here's uh, the first one. What does it mean for you to show up in the world as someone made in God's image, existing with the creativity to bring about flourishing in places where you live, work, learn, and play? And then the second question um, is this, where do you lack congruence? Where is your life divided up into sacred or secular things? Where do you have more drawers uh, than you need? Where might, the spirit being in, where might the spirit be inviting you to open a drawer and allow God to speak life into it? So I'm gonna pray and bless the next few minutes and then um, we'll come to the table. So Jesus, uh, we thank you for who you are. 
And we thank you for a room and a space uh, to consider what I think is the most primal of questions of who we are. So we just invite you to speak into that. I just ask that your spirit would come and that you um, would do what you do, that you would speak into us on an individual basis, into our individual lives and hearts and minds and thought processes. And I pray that you would give us uh, the capacity to imagine or reimagine how we might arrange our lives in a way that leads to flourishing for us and flourishing for others. And God, for that second question, I just ask for the courage to dare to look at our drawers. I just ask for the courage to, to dare to look at the places that we keep hidden and secret we would allow your voice into them that you want to speak. I think we're afraid that you're going to speak shame into our secrets, but in my experience, that's not what you do. You you speak hope and love and mercy and reimagining a new way of living that's less destructive. I just ask for the courage to do that. I, I ask for the courage to figure out what congruence looks like for us. We love you. We trust you or want to. So you bless this time.